Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, England, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, please visit our website at centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following paper was presented by Mrs. Catherine Pepinster, former editor of The Tablet, as part of the Catholic Theology Research Seminar series. The paper is entitled, The Keys and the Kingdom, The British and the Papacy from John Paul II to Francis. I am a nearly graduate of Durham University. Uh, I didn't come here in the end, but uh, I did, I did uh, apply to Durham and came up here. Um, it was the first time I'd come to Durham. And it, it's so long ago that my trip here coincided with Prince Charles finishing his time in charge of a boat when he was in the Royal Navy. And the, boat, the train I took home from Durham had the sailors from his boat on it, and he'd given them a huge amount of money, which they spent on drink, and, and gave all the people on the train free drinks, uh, and a very jolly time was had by all. So I have fond memories of, of Durham and trips home, so I'm looking forward to what might happen when I get back on the train. So, um, as Karen was explaining, uh, I have written this book about uh, the British and the papacy, the contemporary relationship, which is something that I uh, spent my time thinking about uh, for 13 years as editor of the tablet, and I have continued to think about since I left a year ago. But you can't think about the contemporary relationship without thinking a little bit about the history as well. And uh, the history uh, is uh, vivid this month uh, because, of course, as you know, in a few days' time, the skies above Britain will be alight with fireworks and there'll be bonfires in people's gardens, in sports fields, in town centres and village greens. And atop some of the bonfires will be an effigy of a man, Guy Fawkes, a Catholic it's Britain's annual celebration of how the state vanquished the Catholic plot to bring it down. In 1605, Guy Fawkes and his co-conspirators, driven by a devotion to their Catholic religion and to the Pope, and an antipathy to the Protestant religion and the Protestant King James I, plotted to blow up Houses of Parliament with gunpowder, hence the fireworks which each year on November the 5th marked that the plot failed. In Lewis, a town on the south coast, the November the 5th celebrations even include an effigy of the Pope being burnt, but that is a rarity. For the relationship between the papacy and the British is a very different one today from the one that even existed 30 years ago, despite the annual Guy Fawkes Night extravaganza with fireworks. When Guy Fawkes and his co-conspirators plotted against the Protestant state, it was around 70 years after Henry VIII's break with Rome. But so strong was the sense that Europe would stand alone against the papacy in Catholic Europe that it was another 225 years before it was no longer illegal to be a Catholic and 246 years after Fawkes' conspiracy before the Catholic hierarchy was restored. Today, one might see Catholicism as just another Christian denomination in the UK. Indeed, it's one that's thriving compared to some of the others. 
while the Church of England remains the leading denomination, given that it is the established church which has been at the heart of public life and has been headed by the monarch ever since the Reformation, the Catholic Church now has the most active Sunday church-going members. Catholics, once barred from Parliament and from the top universities, are now at the centre of public life. The Governor of the Bank of England and the Vice-Chancellors of the Universities of Oxford and Cambridge are all prominent Catholics. My research has shown that Catholicism plays a much more complex role in Britain today than having a few celebrity Catholics in positions of influence, however much they play their part in transforming the image of a religion once viewed as foreign and dangerous. It's not that long ago that Catholics were always called Roman Catholics to denote their otherness and words like popery and papist had a definite pejorative edge. I don't know if this, the light issue is a Protestant plot. <laughs> Lola's light. So two issues in particular beyond the role of Catholics in public life have helped transform the relationship between the papacy and the British. One is diplomacy, and the other is the ecumenical relationship with the Church of England. Two events have also played their part, the visits of John Paul II and Benedict XVI to the UK. I'll explain how all these have played their role, and I'll then say something about what makes the relationship still sometimes fractious, and the perceptions that British people have today regarding the Pope. First of all, diplomacy. If you've ever encountered uh, diplomacy in Rome within the church, you may know that there are ambassadors to the Holy See and that the Secretariat of State is at the centre of the diplomatic scene. But I suspect few people in Britain have any idea of the diplomatic relationship between the United Kingdom and the Holy See, including Catholics. The first time they had a clue it existed was after reports emerged of a politician known for his fondness for drink, who staggered across a gathering for diplomats, he was Foreign Secretary at the time, after he spotted what he thought was a woman in a stunning long black dress with a beautiful scarlet sash. <laughs> Madam, may I have this dance? asked the British Foreign Secretary. You may not, sir. When the Foreign Secretary protested and asked Madam why not, Scarlet Sash retorted, because I am the Papal Nuncio. <laughs> After centuries without any contact between Britain and the diplomats of the Holy See, the First World War caused the UK to send an envoy to the Pope, but full diplomatic relations were not restored until 1981. Part of the hesitancy was due to Protestant objections, particularly from Northern Ireland, but once restored, there was immediate common ground, not least over concerns about communism and the power of the Soviet Union. For Rome, the UK was important. There's the link with the worldwide Anglican Communion, it's a permanent member of the UN Security Council, it belongs to NATO. But the UK's forthcoming separation from the EU is of undoubted concern in Rome. So what does the UK see as useful about Rome? By the UK I mean the government. Undoubtedly, it's a crossroads for the world. It's a place of encounter where the British, through their ambassador, can spread influence to other parts around the globe. It's a source of knowledge too, where the British can find out how others are thinking in places where the UK itself is not so influential, but the Holy See is. In recent times, certain British politicians have spotted opportunities. 
Gordon Brown was one. He realised he might get his message across to African nations, for example, if it were one that was shared by the Catholic Church. As Chancellor of the Exchequer, Brown had collaborated with the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace in organising a conference on globalisation and poverty. That same year, in a speech in the UK for Cathod, he paid tribute to the vision of Paul VI, articulated in Populorum Progressio, and repeated the aims of the Pope as the aims of his generation. Our mutual solidarity, the claims of social justice and universal charity. Shared commitments between Rome and London are apparent. There's been continuing dialogue over the past 20 years over global issues such as climate change, poverty, vaccination of children, and more recently, human trafficking. It was clear that the two recent Labour Prime Ministers, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, were particularly keen on the relationship with Rome. In David Cameron's time, there wasn't that same interest, but the current Prime Minister, Theresa May, has understood the opportunities as well. This became clear during her previous role as Home Secretary when she visited Rome to discuss human trafficking with Pope Francis and has maintained her commitments combating it, it, it ever since. So does having a personal faith help when Prime Ministers deal with Rome? Tony Blair clearly has one. He attended Mass with his Catholic wife and children, eventually converting after he left office. Both Gordon Brown and Theresa May's fathers were clergymen in the Church of Scotland and the Church of England. David Cameron, by contrast, said his nominal Christian faith is like the signal of the magic FM radio station in the Chiltern Hills. It comes and goes. Then there's the Foreign Office, the conduit for relations with the Holy See. I get the sense that its civil servants don't really know what to do with the Holy See. It moves the desk around that deals with it continually. At one time, it came under global economic affairs, then multilateral policy, and now it's under the European Directorate. The Foreign Office caused almighty embarrassment in Rome some years ago when it decided that the UK ambassador to the Holy See should have his residence within the confines of the UK embassy to the Republic of Italy's compound, thus breaking the terms of the Lateran Pact. There were even redder faces all round when a team of young graduates were set of task of dreaming up the unexpected during the visit of Pope Benedict in 2010, and they suggested he launch his own range of condoms and visit an abortion clinic. The blue-sky thinking required an apology, but was clearly preposterous. But more concerning, I think, is the comment by Cardinal Vincent Nichols that the Foreign Office doesn't know whether to treat the Holy See as San Marino or China. For Rome, though, what matters a great deal today, various officials have led me to believe, is their perception that Britain is no longer so outward-looking. They sense a retreat, a focus on domestic matters, and a more insular approach that's made Brexit a reality. For the Catholic Church, the EU is an entity steeped in Catholic social teaching, inspired by its Catholic founders, such as Jean Monnet and Robert Schumann, and the UK's change of heart has caused alarm bells to ring in the Vatican. One of the glaring omissions in the relationship between the British and the papacy in recent years has been the failure to spot how much overlap there can be between the Holy See's concerns in the developing world and those of the British Commonwealth. The UK's colonial history has meant its strong links to Africa, the Indias and the Caribbean. It may well be that there might be greater dialogue between the two in future, 
with Baroness Patricia Scotland, now in post as Secretary General. Her predecessor was markedly secular and never visited Rome once. A major exception to this omission, however, came during the run-up to the conclave in 2013, which elected Pope Francis. Then, the late Cardinal Cormac Murphy O'Connor, long a supporter and friend of Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio of Argentina, struck a deal with the Foreign Office via the then Ambassador Nigel Baker to address a reception at the Ambassador's residence to which Commonwealth Cardinals would be invited. You'll read the detail in my book of what was the outcome, but suffice to say that the former Australian Ambassador, Tim Fisher, who was back in town for the run-up to the conclave, commented that Murphy O'Connor played a blinder. It was the most powerful non-voting role of a cardinal he'd ever known, said Fisher, reflecting on the fact that Cardinal Cormac spoke to these cardinals and talked to the voting cardinals about why Bergoglio was the man. So the Foreign Office, as benign hosts, therefore played its part in getting Pope Francis elected. Today, someone like Baroness Scotland can bridge the divide in the UK and the Holy See, because being a Catholic herself, she gets the papacy. She understands its reach. One wonders sometimes about whether the British capacity for empathy really is there when one hears certain people speak with such confidence about the UK and with such condescension about elsewhere. I recently listened to one of the UK's most seasoned ambassadors declare that Britain's diplomats were the best in the world. He said that with no irony whatsoever, despite the stop-start Brexit fiasco and lack of progress on talks. And in May 2016, during a visit to meet religious orders working with victims of war zone sexual violence, a prime example of where the UK and Rome can work in partnership, Foreign Office Minister Baroness Annerley said, the Catholic Church may be small in numbers, but is tremendous in reach. Small in numbers? I suspect this is someone talking who's steeped in English tradition, which perceives the Catholic Church as small fry at home compared to the Anglicans. Fortunately, that sort of assumption is not the stuff of the relationship between the Catholic Church and the Church of England itself. For the past 50 years, the two denominations have drawn closer together, albeit with some substantial upsets along the way, such as ordination of women and the Anglicans' mixed messages about how they see gay partnerships. In the case of the relationship between the Holy See and the British government, it seems to me that it's the UK that is capable of arrogance. But if there's any unfortunate overconfidence in the contact between the two denominations, in this case, it's Rome that expresses it. There was undoubted hurt in the way that Rome dealt with other Christians in its document, Dominus Jesus, written by the then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, who claimed to the world in 2000 that the Church of England was not a church but an ecclesial community and that the word church should only be used for bodies that have preserved a valid episcopate. Then, in 2009, came the announcement of the Anglican Ordinariat, set up by Benedict XVI, of course, previously Cardinal Ratzinger, to enable groups of Anglicans to join the Catholic Church without losing what was termed their liturgical and spiritual patrimony. I've tried to work out what that means. Uh, I think the way to describe it is that they accept the Pope's authority, but they still go to Evensong. <laughs>
There was little evidence that Anglicans were queuing up, waiting for such an organisation. Rather, it attracted already disaffected Anglicans. But the ordinariat nevertheless did cause tensions. The manner in which it was announced, giving the then Archbishop of Canterbury little warning, was plain discourteous. But has it really had any impact? There's little sign of it drawing Anglicans away towards Catholicism, and unless it attracts its own seminarians, I think it's unlikely to survive for very long, and it certainly doesn't seem to be high on the agenda of this pontificate. Some of the divisions between the Catholic Church and the Church of England today seem unlikely to be bridged. It's hard to imagine the Catholic Church moving substantially on women's priesthood in the short term, for example. But in other ways, the two churches have moved more closely together, and this has played, I'd argue, a major part in consolidating the place of Catholics in Britain, in helping the church come in from the cold. Much of this is due to personal relationships. Recent popes and archbishops of Canterbury have developed strong connections, a vitally important symbol of ecumenical progress, while hard work goes on behind the scenes by church officials and theologians. There's similar contact at the local level. But what is apparent is that while some of the hardest efforts coming closer together on theology and ecclesiology are not where people thought we would be by now, instead there's a willingness to offer common witness and be of service to the world. In an increasingly secular nation like Britain, the common bonds of faith are stronger than what divides us. This was apparent last October when Pope Francis and Justin Welby met and said in their common declaration, the world must see us witnessing in this common faith in Jesus by acting together. They went on to urge working together to care for the planet, to offer education, health care and shelter. Nobody would deny this common witness is important, but one must ask, is this the easy stuff compared with trying to find greater theological and ecclesiological unity. In 2015, the preacher to the papal household, Raniero Cantalamessa, addressed the opening of the 10th five-year term of General Synod at Westminster Abbey, where, as he reflected on the Reformation, he urged people not to be prisoners of the past. There is a sense in which the relationship between the British and the papacy is no longer such a prisoner of the past, the government and the established church, the Church of England, engage fruitfully with Rome. But there is yet evidence of difficulties with the Catholic Church, perhaps no longer springing from centuries-old sense of mutual suspicion of the old dispensation threatening Englishness itself, and its sense of being so different from what lies on the other side of the Channel. No matter that England had, of course, been Catholic for so long before the Reformation. Now, the difficulties today seem to me to be born more out of the secularisation of Britain. Where the relationship between government and the papacy has been more fractious, it's over issues on the domestic front. There's been a growing call in the UK, which has affected all Christian denominations and other religions too, for greater liberalisation of the law regarding homosexuality. When homosexuality was made legal in Britain in 1967, the Catholic Church did not object but as the call for even greater equality for gay people has grown, so has the discomfort of the Catholic Church. It's an unease which finds its roots in the Vatican, but it's quite apparent that there have been similar objections to gay marriage, for example, in other countries. 
and a previous nuncio instructed the bishops of England and Wales to speak up strongly in opposition to such moves. In England and Wales, there was a further dispute too when under the Equality Act of 2007, the government wanted to force adoption agencies to treat same-sex couples the same as heterosexual couples. It was a step too far for the church, for it stressed that parents must be male and female. When the church asked for an exception to be allowed so that Catholic adoption agencies could continue their work, the government turned it down, with Cabinet Minister Harriet Harman famously saying that you can't be a little bit against discrimination. While the church wrote off what the government was attempting as political correctness, the Labour government saw it as a matter of rights. Elsewhere, rights had drawn the church and the British government to work together, in Africa, say, working to help children achieve the right to education. But at home, the language of rights drove church and state apart. Yet the hierarchy in England and Wales, it's fair to say, did not entirely take the Catholic laity with them. Research by sociologists shows that many Catholics, especially younger people, don't accept this perception of gay people and instead see lack of treatment and lack of equal treatment for them as akin to racism. On sexual matters, church teaching is not finding majority support among British Catholics. The failure to secure backing for its stance on homosexuality is akin to the rejection of teach, t- church teaching by large numbers of Catholics on contraception. Gay Catholics and the Catholic parents and siblings of gay people are similarly not finding that teaching matches their own experience. This isn't, of course, to say that all Catholics reject this teaching or that all priests and bishops are absolute adherents of this teaching. But on this issue, it seems to me that the government seems more in tune with many Catholics thinking on these issues Uh, rather than the church. But where bishops, priests and people are as one is on another issue that has been beset by secular critics of the church, education. For a country that was once so sworn an enemy of the papacy and the Catholic church, England has a surprising education system in that substantial numbers of Catholic schools lie within the state system and over 800,000 children are educated in Catholic schools in England and Wales, more of course in Scotland. Since the Catholic revival of the late 19th century, the Catholic Church in Britain has been a church of essentially migrants, and its restored hierarchy made education a priority, sometimes building schools before churches. Even within the state system, they come under the authority of the bishops, and in that sense lead straight back to Rome. It's a system that connects all corners of the church, from Rome all the way through to the hierarchy and to parish priests and the laity. Despite those schools being within the state system, in recent years governments have sought to limit these schools' provision for Catholic pupils, urging that they offer increasing numbers of places to other pupils. Nothing distresses an English Catholic bishop more than such an assault on his schools and their Catholic ethos, and it outrages parents too, knowing that generations of Catholics have not only benefited, but financially contributed to these schools as well. The battles cut across party divides. In 2006, the Labour Education Secretary Alan Johnson announced he'd make it mandatory for faith schools to take 25% of their pupils from the general population. 
a letter-writing campaign by parents to MPs, and the lobbying of Catholic MPs put paid to Johnson's plans within a few weeks. Then, the coalition government of Liberal Democrats and Conservatives under David Cameron tried another tack. It decreed that a new faith school would have to make 50% of its places available to, to children whose parents weren't members of that faith. Catholic schools commonly take non-Catholics, but their head teachers and the bishops want to retain responsibility for admissions and not have them ordered from above. So such pleas fell into deaf ears uh, when it came to the government this time. The story of Catholic education is not only one that highlights what is most precious to the Catholic community in Britain, it's also one that illustrates how personal relationships can make a difference in dealings between church and state, just as they do in relationships with other denominations. There was deadlock throughout the coming years. No new Catholic schools were built because of this policy. Cardinal Vincent Nichols, the Archbishop of Westminster, effectively head of the Catholic Church in England and Wales, had no personal accord with David Cameron. He didn't visit Tendani Street when Cam Cameron was Prime Minister. Cameron never visited Rome, an absence duly noted by the Holy See. Meanwhile, Cardinal Nichols had developed friendly relationships with Theresa May through their common commitment to combat human trafficking. Within days of Mrs May becoming Prime Minister, Cardinal Nichols was publishing an effusive message of praise about her appointment and was fast through the door of number 10. Within, the weeks, within weeks of the start of her premiership, it was announced that the cap on Catholic people numbers for new schools was being lifted, and there was praise for Catholic schools too. Her government announced the cap hadn't worked, hadn't made faith schools more diverse, and had limited Catholic schools, which, said a spokesman for her, are more successful, more popular, and more ethnically diverse than other types of state school. This account suggests that Catholics with their positions of influence in public life, with their churches and their schools, have come in from the cold in Britain to a limited degree and then have felt the freeze again and then returned to the warmth. It's like a permanent dance, a few steps this way, a few steps that. The church's messages on issues of personal morality, such as contraception, on gay marriage, fall on many deaf ears when it comes to the British public. Secular Britain doesn't seem to have much time for how the church thinks on these issues, and I suspect that its male-only celibate priesthood is not viewed by many Britons as having much to offer people on sexual morality, and especially not now in the wake of the sex abuse crisis. But other aspects of Catholicism, its social teaching, what it has to say about poverty, homelessness, about what Pope Francis calls our common home, i.e. the environment, is highly popular among politicians, trade unions and others. So the grand statements about issues at the macro level seem appealing, but what we might call finger-wagging at a micro level is rejected. The British can mix and match as much as they like, of course. Catholics form a vibrant community, but a small one. The nation remains nominally Anglican, but increasingly secular. And yet, it has great regard for the papacy. A country which rejected the Pope outright nearly 500 years ago has welcomed two pontiffs to its shores in the last 35 years. Both visits of first John Paul II and then Benedict XVI were mired in controversy before the Popes arrived. Both then attracted huge crowds on the streets and TV audiences. 
And those who turned out weren't just Catholics, their appeal was far greater. In my book, I've tried to analyse what gives the Pope such appeal here in Britain in the modern era. The German sociologist Max Weber outlined three characteristics of leadership in his classic study. He said, authority requires legality, tradition and charisma. The British nation clearly rejected the, the legality of the Pope centuries ago, but it's a certain regard for tradition. Its loyalty to the monarchy suggests tradition does stand for something. But it's charisma that is most important today in the relationship between Britain and the papacy. Charisma, Weber said, means a leader has a certain quality of individual personality by which he's set apart and treated as endowed with supernatural, superhuman, or at least specifically exceptional powers or qualities. And that, I think, sounds like a description of Pope Francis. The political scientist Anne Ruth Wilner also expanded on Weber's theory by further examining the key characteristics that constitute a charismatic ruler. These include being someone from a lower socio-economic background, so not from the ruling elite, the importance of the person's image, an inexhaustible vitality, great composure under stress, and a determination and stubbornness combined with a revolutionary agenda. Again, I think this does match Pope Francis, including his backstory, as well as John Paul II in his pomp when he came here. I don't think I'm being unfair to Benedict XVI if I say that charisma is not his most obvious quality. Yet he still managed to draw the crowds during his 2010 state visit to Britain. The status of his office then may have more impact on the British than we might first think. The impact of the media on how a papal visit is perceived should not be ignored either. And one might even argue that Benedict's diffident manner his observations about Britain, articulated in his Westminster Hall speech about faith and reason, had its own sort of charisma during the 2010 visit. But his impact on the British is overshadowed by the figure of Pope Francis, who is hugely popular among the general public, as surveys indicate and website hits reveal. People find him an attractive person, warming to his way of speaking about himself, finding empathy in how he describes his faith in the world. In the Catholic Church, he can clearly be divisive, as traditionalists prove. But in a secular world like Britain, Francis communicates faith and moral values. Its morality is soft power, if you like. So he's pontifex the bridge, and he appears to be crossing the divide between the Church and the secular world. Another aspect of Pope Francis that I would suggest is having an impact on on people in Britain is what I'd call his countercultural image. Charismatic leaders are often egotistic and narcissistic, but Francis seems to be of a more humble disposition. This can provide a different sort of power or influence, providing transformation or metanoia, a shift in thinking. Francis himself underwent metanoia, according to his biographers, during his time in Argentina. And this transformation is something he's now trying to impart to the world and the church. Positive responses from outside the church to him, <clears throat> including in Britain, suggest what a popular leader he has become. This is cultural shift. But there should be a warning attached. If so much depends on the personality of a particular pope, what happens to the office when someone less charismatic is elected? 
Or should the voting cardinals of a conclave make this a major consideration in the media age? Catholic Church is a body that has to make choices between integrity and pragmatism all the time. It's particularly hard in the modern world, which is smaller through globalisation and the media, but wider in terms of diversity of beliefs, attitudes and commitments. Britain is a particularly diverse and secular society. If the papacy can manage to develop a two-way dialogue with such a nation, then it has a template to follow for the rest of the increasingly secular West. So I would say that the nation that once rejected the papacy has now become a very useful laboratory. Thank you.